Welcome to the JMS Podcast with me, Jorge M. Sanchez. Thank you for tuning in. We got a great episode. Today's episode, our main guest is the artist Julie Meridian. We had a great talk about art and many other things. And it turns out that she is most likely involved to a software that you might be using. To, to find out, keep on listening. Before we go to Julie Meridian, we do have a segment today. Today's segment is a going viral segment with Chase Doherty, and we will be discussing the Tide Pod Challenge. We'll get to know a little bit of the history of it and our take on it. But before we do all that, ladies and gentlemen, and anybody else who identifies in between, we got to let you know that you can subscribe to the GMS Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. You can also follow the JMS Podcast on your social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Please check out the JMS Podcast website by checking out jmspodcast.com. If you want to email me for any reason, you can email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget, you can support this podcast a step further by donating on Patreon. Just go on Patreon and search for the JMS Podcast. It is for a good cause, and that that is to keep this thing going. Got to keep this machine oiled up and ready to go. All right, let's go check in with Chase Doherty. To another episode of Going Viral with Chase Doherty. Oh man, it's and great to be here. Chase, uh, how are you doing so far? Oh, I'm doing great, man. Doing doing wonderful. Just uh, enjoying a Friday night uh, and uh, with you. And oh, happy birthday. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Dude, oh, I, forgot, great. I forgot to post that actually my birthday is also the uh, anniversary of the podcast. So we are, Whoa, that's so, special. So it's officially three years now? So are you going to... No, like, it's two... You can interview yourself? <laughs> Nah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> nah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But Chase, uh, th- th- yeah. I'm excited because uh, we're going to talk about something that's been going viral. Yeah. Uh, that, that's just hitting the headlines. And, and mm-hmm. it, it's just, uh, I think everybody is amazed, confused, and just downright uh, appalled of this thing called uh, the Tide Pod Challenge. <laughs> Now, there's a warning you wouldn't think anyone older than a child would need, but it turns out parents can't just worry about their toddlers eating detergent pods. They need to worry about their teens, too. And John is with us this morning to tell us about a dangerous trend on social media. Good morning, John. Good morning, Heather. On this very show, as I recall, about two years ago, we told people those Tide Pods, those detergent pods, those attractive-looking pods in the laundry room are not to be eaten. And the company's gone to a lot of pains to prevent children from eating them, although some 10,000 children have been exposed. So those, say, under the age of 10 or 11 seem to have the message, or at least their parents do, and the company has uh, tried to prevent uh, them from uh, by getting the message out there. Now, let's look at something called the Tide Pod Challenge. This is one of those things out there on the internet, specifically on Twitter, daring young people to bite, to chew, to try and ingest these, well, let's face it, they're a cleaning product. They're made of detergent, they taste awful, and they can kill you. Yeah, no, the, the Tide Pod Challenge. The Tide Pod Challenge is, um, 
basically for for our listeners out there that don't know what the Tide Pod challenge is, basically what a Tide Pod is, it's basically a laundry detergent um, that's uh, concentrated like in a in a plastic pack that's like vacuum sealed, and it activates you know through the wash cycle. Right. But and, the thing yeah. is that it looks like a candy. It looks like <laughs> because it's colorful. Yeah. Right. It, yeah, and that's the messed up part. It looks like it does look like a candy, and yeah. Um, like it, it reminds me like when you're a kid and like mm-hmm. you, you like someone in your class like a chick she has like lip gloss and it smells like so good like it smells like a like candy yes and you just want to like eat the lip gloss but you're like no but like what is it just what, me you never what, had this before what uh what yeah what uh what what when did you start experiencing this like middle school high school throughout my whole childhood grade dude. school really? yeah wow throughout, you know like you know girls will start getting that some like early makeup stuff and they will like smell like fruit oh yeah that's like, like i candy always hated fruit. that i always hated that shit i, I was like oh i wish there's a, a candy i could just eat if a know? girl if a girl's lips, like a like, smelled taffy. fruity i just that was a turn off for me well now's where adults it is but like yeah. when you're a kid you're like oh man that's candy yeah, no, I mean, that's that's lip gloss. Yeah. Or that's I was whatever. more of a chocolate guy. I didn't so, but, but, but the yeah. Tide Pod challenge yeah. though, it looks like a candy. It's like uh-huh. a small tiny pouch mm-hmm. that's meant for you know to put it to the wash. Yeah. But what are people doing with this thing? So people are. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know like why this is a challenge. I mean, I guess it's a challenge to just show how stupid you are. But the challenge is basically you put it in your mouth. And you bite on it, and you see how long you could last before you gag. Um, or uh, keep, keep in mind, these are chemicals. Yeah, that are essentially that <laughs> is essentially poison. Part. Yeah, no, it is. Right. They, they, it says on the pack. I mean, clearly, um, it does say on the packaging. It has for quite some time, actually, um, even before they did the Tide Pods themselves. Like, basically, general laundry detergent isn't something that's meant to. <laughs> To be ingested, so I don't know why. If we make it look like fucking candy, uh, candy bar, uh, that people just all of a sudden want to eat it or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. And people even put it on food as well too. I saw some uh, videos where people, people put it on a fucking DiGiorno pizza. <laughs> they bake it in the oven and they eat a slice of pizza with the Tide Pod. Uh, intact. Good lord. And it, oh, but it but on. it's but it's leaked out. Well, that's the fucked up part. It's not it's not even like a Tide Pod anymore because it's it's went through the oven. You got cooked. It's cooked. <laughs> yeah. So it's not even. He's not even. You're not even doing the you, challenge. You right. lose the flavor once you put it in the oven. You yeah. You saying? lose. Yeah. That's not even the. You lose the integrity of the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> That's so that's so silly as I say. You lose the integrity of the stupid challenge. Right. It's yeah. Like, yeah. You, you're supposed to eat that raw, right? Yeah, no, you're supposed like, to Yeah, you you're supposed so, to eat it just so, like fucking nuts. Yeah. But but it's the idea that people record like they're video recording themselves yeah. chewing on the Tide Pod and putting it on social media such as Facebook and YouTube and and, and pretty much all to be famous. <laughs> yeah. To to be famous. Yeah. To be famous. That's sad. What does that say about us? Um, that says, I think that's a double-edged sword for, like, both people. Us as the viewer, like, and then us as the people that were to do it. Like, I mean, the demographic of people, they're not just, like, teenagers or, like, little kids. I mean, there are, like, some adults that are, like, our age. Yeah, that's the thing. The the demographic of the people that do it. Yeah. You can't even, you can't put a niche to it. I mean, stupidity doesn't, it 
Yeah, never I, changes. I was thinking of that because people were putting out memes, like, you know, just talking shit about the younger generation doing the whole Tide Pod challenge. Yeah. But I was like, dude, a lot of these videos are like, it's a wide spectrum of ages, really. I see yeah. old people do it, middle aged people, mm-hmm. X Geners, millennials. Everybody's fucking doing yeah, it. Yeah, all the generations are, are so, doing it. Yeah. Where did it all start? Um, How did this happen, Chase? I mean, basically, as far as, I mean, what I've seen, um, I mean, this trend started going up back in like 2017, but it goes back to 2012 as well, too, was like when the actual like Tide Pod, um, I think, was actually created. And uh, it actually occurred on The Onion, and basically it was just kind of like a joke thing where somebody pointed out like, why does this look like it's something that's so good to eat? Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of like a joke. And then it became a meme like later on in like 2013 and 2015. It, but it was very low key. It was very subtle. Like it right. didn't get like a lot of like traction or like a lot of attention. Well, it was funny because it's absurd. Yeah. Like, it's oh, absurd. Like, oh, well, this this, this fucking laundry uh, detergent looks like a fucking cookie that I can eat, yeah. you know? And, um, and then I remember yeah. College Humor putting out a, a sketch video about that too. Yeah. Uh, I think recently, that was 2016, I believe. 2016, yeah. I mean, yeah, 2017 is like when it really uh, took its uh, took its form, and so it just yeah, December and then January, it's like on the news now, and it caught on quick, didn't it? It caught on really quick. Yeah, yeah. Now this isn't the first so-called challenge uh, where it causes uh, bodily harm to people, right? I mean, previously. There was like you know the boiling water challenge, and then there's the the set yourself on fire challenge, and oh, this this cultural phenomenon in social media where <laughs> someone comes up with either something dangerous or funny, yeah, and people are just like, you know what, I gotta top that. I, I yeah, I don't know, I don't know where we've gotten to as a society where we think it's okay to torture to just torture ourselves this way just for the name just for uh relevancy of fame and the relevancy of fame is i mean this we're gonna we're talking about this now like it's just gonna be embedded in like the history books for like the rest of our lives but that's the thing like with this viral stuff man i mean like shit passes like shit just passes and goes i mean um, I feel like it's just gonna be something else is gonna top it, and we're gonna f- we're gonna forget about this Tide Pod challenge. You know, whether it's a month from now yeah, or a year from like, now, but like like fifty years from now, like some hipsters in the yeah, future are gonna be like, on. oh, they used to do Tide Pod <laughs> challenges back in the day. We're gonna bring it back now. Yeah, we're gonna yeah they're gonna like the wear, hipsters fifty years from now are gonna bring it back. They're gonna wear tight jeans and plaid shirts. Yeah. yeah. What's the future? <laughs> Who knows what they're wearing? You know. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe they're all, maybe they're all genderless and like. Oh, like whatever, and, and and they're like, you know what? Fifty years ago, they used to eat Tide Pod challenges, or they used to have Tide Pod challenges. They used to have Tide. Let's bring that back here. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and how they will make fun. How like, oh, people in the past must have been so stupid. It's all, it's, it's all you know, cyclical. It's right? all, yeah, exactly. Because there's gonna be, yeah. I, I think that's one trait of of humanity that I think has been passed on generation to generation mm. is uh, ignorance and stupidity. Yeah, there's different forms of it. There's different measures of it. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. You're spot on. You're spot on when it comes to you're you're definitely spot on when it comes down to that. Because I mean, there there are probably like some old people um, that are just like, what the fuck is this shit? But there's some old people doing it too. I was like, dude, you fucking asshole, you're gonna die. Yeah. You're like in six. You saw those videos, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, there there are people that have gotten like serious. I mean, laundry detergent. If you ever like get it on your hands. (laughs) 
I mean, I've done it. I've done it once accidentally, and I just, uh, just I kind of wiped it off. But like, I, I felt it kind of burn like a little bit, mm-hmm. like just like liquid laundry detergent. And I mean, that shit's that shit's no joke. I mean, no, yeah, especially yeah, if you put it in your mouth. I mean, we're talking about permanent damage to like not being able to taste shit. Yeah. Basically, yeah. I mean, that's that's the risk or, or that you're taking. Die. Or yeah, or yeah. or death. Yeah. yeah. Well, throwing it out there, mm-hmm. I've noticed that a common type of people mm-hmm. doing this challenge yeah are boys or men no girls yeah no girls really at least I can't think of the top of my head yeah have we have we become so high in the food chain that now evolutionary we're trying to kill each other off just to balance <laughs> out the, the, system, the ecosystem I think um, I think it just goes back to that saying where boys will be boys and girls will be girls um, I feel I mean, like not boys- to say gr- <clears throat> girls are not doing it either. I'm sure no, they are. Yeah, but I think so far from what I've noticed, this trend is just it, it. You know, it could be part of this whole you know male culture of like machismo, and like trying to trying to be outdo macho. macho and outdo the other person and yeah and shit. Right? Yeah, that could be it. I could I could see that. I could see that being a thing. Uh, maybe this is Darwinism. <clears throat> maybe this is natural selection. You know, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Dude. It sounds fucked up, but come on, dude. Like, if you're a full adult, yeah, a cognitive adult with awareness of yeah. what you're putting in your mouth, and uh-huh. you're still doing it for the sake of social media likes. Yeah. I'm sorry, man. I don't feel bad for you if you end up in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also. <laughs> hey, you might say, "Horror, you're fucking cold-hearted." Yeah, that. They're, they're, they're fucking fathers or whatever, or their family members. It's like no. You know, if a Tide Pod challenge doesn't kill them, something about something something else will. Something else would have. Something else will. Like all bad things, I yeah. think it all started with good intentions. I'm trying to fit. Well, like, okay, explain yourself there, because good yeah, intentions. Because with this whole quote unquote challenges in social media, okay, they didn't start with like the ALS challenge, like you know the whole idea of, of, of you know raising awareness to like something like you know like a diagnosis or like, ice bucket challenge, yeah, ice bucket challenge and all this other challenge, which I think was meant to you know be awareness and everybody could you know easily get into the fun by recording themselves or putting on social media, yeah, mm-hmm. and like all things like the internet, you know, starts out something great, then that one asshole has to do something extreme, and yeah. then it just catches fire. And then also, there's also like the evolution of it as well too. Not only where people are doing it or where someone takes it too far, but where people actually troll like the actual challenge itself just to kind of get clickbait and things like that, people to click on it, thinking that they're going to watch the actual challenge. I noticed actually with the Tide Pod Challenge, there were like a few videos that were up there where uh, people were kind of trolling the Tide Pod Challenge. Like... uh, you know, basically, you know, saying that like, oh yeah, no, I heard about this Tide Pod challenge. I'm about to do it. Here's a Tide Pod, and they were like, "Psych, just kidding." I don't know who the fuck would do this. You guys are fucking idiots. And that got like 1.2 million views, where a guy just does that, and people are like commenting, like applauding this guy, thumbs up, like get this guy getting likes on all of his that videos. That guy's rich. Did, did he monetize it? I, I don't know. Really? I don't know if he monetized it, but I was like, I thought I was like, that's fucking genius. Uh, there was also also like another one as well too, where like a guy that kind of I think he's like um, he looks like a wrestler like WWE wrestler like 
Macho Man, Randy Savage kind of personality where he's just like he heard him he's like, Yeah, I heard about this like Tide Pod challenge and shit like that. You know, like you know what's uh better than the Tide Pod challenge? Uh leg day challenge and so, you know like, <laughs> just like he trolled yeah. like I'd like to see you guys do like leg day challenge and shit like that. This Tide Pod challenge <laughs> pussies do the pussies do the Tide Pod challenge, you know, blah blah yeah. blah. So like it goes on for about a minute or so ranting about, you know, how people are dumb for doing the Tide So like people are getting so not only are they trolling the Tide Pod challenge, but they're also calling out people that are stupid. So it's kind of interesting, you know, kind of a turning point where people identify that yeah, this is a trend but there's also a group of people that say like, wow, these people are fucking stupid. Um, there was also another video of a family, a family that was uh, it set it up to where they looked like they were gonna do the Tide Pod challenge. Yeah, like, yeah, together, together. And basically, this this video got like a lot of a lot of dislikes, a lot of mean comments. But it was a really long. It was like a five minute long video, and it started off like the first half of the video was family mom dad uh little girl little boy and they open up like an actual tie pod thing and you know they basically do the challenge itself but then they fake it and they say psych this is these are not tide pods this is candy let us show you how to make tide pod candy and so <laughs> they fucking trick the viewers <laughs> Right. So like yeah, so yeah. like people are like watching this shit for two minutes uh-huh. and they're thinking to themselves like this is an actual family that's doing the Tide Pod challenge and all these mean comments of all these people and then they just they just stop watching the video but then they don't watch the rest of it and then it's actually uh, a mom showing like a recipe on how to like make these sweet cookies. Now does that help? Does that help that they're trivializing this thing and like trying to? Yeah, yeah I think I think it it I think it trolls it. Okay. Really, uh-huh. I think I think it's just a form. It's a form of trolling. Mm. I think it's just a form of kind of making fun of it. Uh, but also, I think it it shows that I think people are a lot smarter than what we kind of give them credit for. Uh, I think people are really good at like capitalizing on like current trends. Yeah, and then yeah. just it's an opportunity here, and then just seeing an opportunity to where you know you can make like a left turn, but that left turn is to something that's pretty amazing. I thought it, I I got a good laugh about it. I thought it was a <laughs> kick. They had the actual like recipe on like how to do it and stuff like that. It looks like little Tide Pods, mm-hmm. but they were like sweet cookies, mm-hmm. and it was like frosting and stuff. It was it was really cool. So now, this thing has been such a big deal that even Tide the company. Have changed the colors of the Tide Pod since, right? Uh, to make them look I more bland and not as enticing. That's, that I mean, you mentioned that. That is so sad that a company has to. When it already says on the side of the box of the label, it says, "Don't eat this. Yeah. This actually, is meant to clean your clothes." I, in some stores, actually, even locked up the the Tide Pods in like glass casings. So, yeah. So it's like it's a serious issue. Apparently, people are taking it very seriously. I mean, yeah. I mean, from from like local news stations to like national national news stations, uh, people posting videos on YouTube of actually doing the challenge in the traditional way and also in innovative ways, but also people trolling as well too, and kind of uh, taking kind of the the comedic sense and also following a trend and you know, capitalizing it on on it as well too. Um, uh, my final thoughts on this is this will die down 
This will die down in two months. We'll find something else to talk about. <laughs> All right, Chase. Yes. Thank yes. you for coming. Oh, thank you as usual, Jorge. Thank you for having me here. And um, I guess uh, is this where I do my <laughs> is this where I do my plug? Go for it. Okay, cool. So yeah, so um, again, my name is uh, Chase Doherty. We're on episode what? Like, is this like episode six? Oh, uh, for the ti- uh, for the second going viral. I don't know. <laughs> I don't keep. Track, I, I, yeah, I don't keep track. I know it doesn't seem like it's in that long. I think this is like episode six. But yeah, so uh, my name is uh, Chase Doherty, uh, local uh, comedian, uh, artist, producer uh, in the San Jose uh, Bay Area. Here, um, you can catch me on uh, Instagram at uh, Chase underscore forty four, uh, Twitter at uh, JCD Comedy, uh, Facebook at Jeffrey Chase Doherty, uh, Snapchat at uh, CD Comedian. Uh, my Instagram used to be on private. Now it's on public. So now you can feel free to follow me without having verification. Uh, but again, thank you very much for listening. Uh, be sure to follow the JMS podcast and uh, be sure to uh, catch any upcoming shows or events. Have a good night, guys. Please email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com and let me know your take on the tight pod challenge. Don't be shy, folks. I would love to hear about it. All right, let's move on to our main guest. Today's guest is the artist Julie Meridian. She is very talented. She is very professional and very thorough. Had a great time chatting with her, and I was really happy that she came on this program. Really got to know her, really got to know her art, her craft, and how involved she was with the Adobe software. And I gotta say, this is a very insightful episode. Now, before we continue on, I do have to uh, warn you guys that uh, at the time of the interview, there was some construction being done to the bathroom. And the uh, contractor, he stayed a lot longer than he said he was. So you might hear <laughs> you might hear his, uh, his hammering away in the background. Hope it's not too much of a disturbing uh, effect for you guys, but other than that, please enjoy this conversation. So here we go with Julie Meridian. How long ago were you in Barcelona? I think five or six years. Ago or that's how long you were in Barcelona? Oh, oh, um, ago. It was just a trip, um, but I would love to go back. Although I think this is, it might be a challenging time to go back with what's been happening for the um, Catalonia and oh, yeah. the push for independence. Do you, do you have a stand for that since you've been there? Do you, do you feel like the uh, the Catalonian people have like an autonomy, autonomous uh what is a government but economy, right? That's the thing. Yeah. Because they're, they're tired of staying within the, the Spanish uh, economy. Right. And they have a history of having their own unique language that got suppressed for many years. Mm. So I think the um, there was a period of time, I want to say 50 to 80 years, where the Spanish government forbade the speaking of Catalan or the teaching of Catalan. So within the last couple of decades, I think that got loosened up and then people started reclaiming the culture and the language. And it's 
that's about all I know about it. But I, it was that's funny. a side I, I didn't even know about. So that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I I took Spanish in high school, and my teacher was from the Basque country, so he had very particular opinions about soccer. But <laughs> it, it was funny going to Barcelona because we we got there, and I thought finally. I can use a little bit of Spanish. I don't remember a bunch, but I recognize more than I can speak and I, I can practice. So yeah. I get there and I'm baffled. I'm like, what? what's going on? I don't remember any of these words. And then I slowly realized, oh, this is Catalan. Catalan is different than Spanish. It's similar, but some of the short words are different and there's a lot more X's and it, they speak Spanish as well, but mm -hmm. it's it's just different enough that I was puzzled for right. a good day <laughs> until that, I realized it. That's how I feel about uh, Portuguese. It's like oh, I, yeah. I, I can like figure out a little bit here and there, you know, because there's some similar root words. Yeah. But other than that, I'm lost in the conversation. Like when there's people talking Portuguese, I was like, I have no idea what's going on. I, I couldn't get a gist of it. Yeah, I can mostly recognize that it's different because I grew up for a time on the coast side. So that's a pretty solid mix of um, people with Mexican roots and people with Portuguese roots mm -hmm. and their families that have been there for centuries. But um, very strong Portuguese um, presence on the coast side, very strong Mexican presence, like culturally, like right, they're right. they're all <laughs> the most established families in the area. Like it's, it, I I used to know Anthony Cunha. I went to Cunha Middle School. Like you just see the names everywhere. <laughs> uh -huh. Did you grow up on the East Coast? Uh, moved around a little bit. Okay. So, the moved around from. New York, Texas, Colorado, Florida, and then California. Hmm. So, and well, were your parents in the military or? Um, my dad worked for um, a couple of different oil companies. Huh? So, but yeah, it's funny. I I tend to gravitate towards people who whose parents were in the military. We right. kind of find each other, and then that question comes up. It's like, oh, military or oil? And <laughs> <laughs> uh, was your mother also in the, in the industry? No, no, she was a stay-at-home mom, and so she was the the anchor as we moved around. Mm. So what was, like, the routine for you when you moved to a new place, like, to get settled? Was there, like, a kind of a... Because I'm sure you went through several culture shocks. If you went from, you know, the East Coast to the Midwest, and to, do, do you feel like there's a certain, you know, way of readjusting? Definitely. I, I think that it made me always a little cautious coming into new situations because I simply didn't know the background and the the mix of what's acceptable and just kind of it's a very different situation to come into groups of people that have a long history together and I didn't want to make assumptions or do something strange so I think I always would be very neutral and I'd just get to know people and talk to them and but mostly stay this neutral entity and then at some point I'd end up drawing something and then that would be my one saving grace that would be the one thing that made me cool yeah. it's it was like, like an Ooh. icebreaker yeah exactly I'd like I'd start drawing like at first it was Garfield and then it was the Simpsons and they're like ooh. so you started drawing <laughs> cartoons first yeah like we're doodling cartoons yeah so I would draw cartoons all the time and I would watch TV and I here's here's how old school it was I would record cartoons on VHS I would pause the VHS and I would draw the cartoons and um, to just how draw old were you poses. by the way 
So at this time, this was at all elementary school. Wow! So as as a young child, you were operating the VCR machine, freezing it, and then tracing over, or just trying to just emulate. Yeah, so just uh, looking at it and having a piece of paper and drawing it, and I, I kind of missed the precision that the VCR setup had because we had a VCR with a remote with a jog dial, so you could you could go frame by frame very precisely, hmm. and that's surprisingly difficult to do now on the computer. You bring something up on YouTube and you're watching it and you want to go back a couple of frames, yeah. you just have to spin it back and then wait and hope to pause it at the right time. I, I haven't found a tool that will let you view and get down to that frame by frame kind of viewing. Uh -huh. So uh, do you feel like art was for you since, you know, it seems like you moved around and do you feel like art was kind of a coping mechanism to, you know, to stay leveled within and like work and, and stay busy essentially? Yeah, definitely. And it also, art, because it was connected to cartoons, and cartoons were something that I could find when we moved, which made a big difference to me. Because when, I, when we moved, there was nothing similar except what we brought. So we had cats, and it's like, okay, it's the family and the cats, and otherwise we're in somewhere brand new. Um, but looking on TV, then I could find Inspector Gadget, I could find Double Dare, like the TV became the anchor and then the cartoons ended up being the thing that would help other kids see me in a light that I felt was positive. Hmm. Was that the plan is to to be a cartoonist? I thought about it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think when I got to maybe late junior high or early high school, I started gravitating more towards other types of art. So I, I started doing uh, charcoal portraits of c celebrities or TV people I liked. And I knew that there was a direction there, but I wasn't quite sure what. So I just kept drawing. And then the, very gradually through high school, kind of started thinking about college. What should I do? What should I do? And I ended up going to college for computer science and a minor in studio art, but it was throwing it up in the air because a big motivator was that I like video games. Oh, like a video game designer or, yeah. or some sort. Yeah, well I had this just vague idea of I used the computer and I liked video games and at, at that time there weren't, there wasn't a lot of differentiation in things you could study. So this is um, 1995. So, 95? A while back, yeah. So What, what kind of games were you attracted to at, at those times? I liked both the puzzle games like Lemmings and Tetris, but I also liked Doom a lot. Doom, Doom. alright. Doom was a major part of my high school <laughs> experience. And it was funny because I actually didn't know that many people that also played video games. Um, some people had consoles. Uh -huh. And so I could connect with them over Nintendo or Sega, but I, I was kind of the oddball. <laughs> oh. So looking at now where the gaming industry and the gaming culture is so huge now, mm -hmm. how do you feel about that now? Like coming from, from being the minority voice to now being like part of this huge culture. I think it's great. I, I would have loved more of that. 
And because as it was, the few people that I found that loved the video games were, it was all guys. Mm -hmm. and, and which was cool and I wanted to hang out with them. But then there was that slight feeling of, wait, but it's a girl. <laughs> and now there, there are so many more types of games and so many more people play them uh -huh. that I think it would have been easier to find people to talk with and people to play with. Um, so that would have been nice. Hmm. So you're, you're drawing, you're studying art throughout high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, what college did you decide to go to? I went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. Oh, how was that like? I loved it. Uh, everybody I met from there really loved it. They say that's like, you know, it's, it's so close to the beach mm -hmm. and it's so close to everything else as well. And it's it's a nice little community they got. Yeah. And it's it's just it's friendly. And the and one one thing that was a little different was the area around the Central Coast is a little less diverse than the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. So that and specifically, I'd say. Um, more white, like, and then Latino, and that's kind of it. Right, because it's kind of the agricultural yeah. area. Yeah. Yeah. So that um, it's which was fine, but it it was something immediately where, and this this might be a side effect of moving around. I I noticed these things. Like I think the, I I think sometimes um, depending on how you've grown up, if you. If you go to groups of people, you might not necessarily notice that, oh, it's unusual that it's all, um, you know, primarily this race or whatever, if that's what you're used to when you're growing up. But I think because I kept moving, like even when it's mostly Caucasian, when it's mostly white, I I immediately feel a little uncomfortable. <laughs> Cause I'm, and I'll think about it. And I'm like, oh, no, this is this is the area and this is what's going on. But. I, I feel so much more comfortable when it's uh, more of a mix. Um, so Cal Poly, uh, one of the things that really drew me to it was the, I liked how practical it was. It's, it's a state school and it's very project focused. And the motto of the school is learn by doing. So everything is focused towards actually doing the projects and making the things. And there's there's theory to support that, but it's a little different than my experience of looking at UCs or other schools where a lot of it was theory. Mm -hmm. And then gradually you'd start doing things where Cal Poly was like, oh no, you're, you're gonna start doing this now. <laughs> and I think that that learn by doing approach has really served me well. Mm. Uh, do did you uh, did your family kind of supported you choosing a creative endeavor going into school? Yeah, well, I think your father uh, being a, the oil businessman. So yeah. I think in some ways I kind of feel like I wussed out in in going. I I, I went for computer science as the primary because uh. that felt more secure as something that I could get a job for, and it felt like something that would be more difficult to learn on my own. Again, at the time there weren't as many resources as there are now. I've worked with a lot of people that didn't go to college that are awesome programmers because there's so much out there to help you learn it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and you weren't afraid of the challenge? No, I, I really liked, I, I was good in math and so that gave me confidence. And I had been, I hadn't been programming, but I used the computer a lot so I was comfortable with it. But I got a little bit of a rude awakening when I started um, my first quarter in my first class because I was in 
computer science 101 and I got there and I realized two-thirds of the class had already been programming they had been they had high school classes about programming they had taken an AP test about programming and I came in and I I realized, oh, maybe that's why my school was considered a rural school, <laughs> um, because they had one computer class and it was called keyboarding that right. taught you how to type. <laughs> so intimidating, isn't it? Totally intimidating, and yeah. it's but it's funny because I think that intimidation, um, I ended up turning it into something else. I I got intimidated, so I learned more, and then I got really frustrated with the the attitudes about um, users, like about the people that use the programs. Hmm. Like uh, the consumers or? Yeah, yeah. So the as, as I'm taking these classes, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of swagger about who can write the best code and how clever it can be. And if someone doesn't understand the thing that you created, um, there's, a, there's a phrase called RTFM, which is um, read the FN manual. And we can cuss on here, by the way. Okay, read, like. read the fucking manual. <laughs> so yeah. that, um, but that was a common attitude to say. Well, if you're using the program that I wrote and you don't understand it, that's your problem. <laughs> and that pissed me off. <laughs> Holy I, smokes! Yeah, I really didn't like that. I, I loved the logic of the computer science, but I hated that attitude. And kind of pretentious, right? Super pretentious. And yeah. uh, but I'm stubborn, so uh -huh. I'm like, but this is interesting. I'm going to continue with it but I kind of hate that attitude. And what that ended up moving me towards was I got an internship doing testing. I was a quality assurance tester, which meant that I could um, test the code to make sure it would work. Um, I had an internship with Microsoft. and um, But then I also got to describe how I thought it should work. And so I kind of loved testing because then I got to try and break things. And when I found things that didn't work the way that I thought they should, I could say, it really should do this. And sometimes it would be something that would just make it easier or more understandable. Mm -hmm. And so that, that got me into working with teams where I got recognized by a designer on a team who said, oh, let's talk because you have the right approach for user experience design. Right. And I said, what? is that <laughs> <laughs> well ultimately it's an essential part you know it's it's one thing to have a great product or a great program but if, if the average person doesn't know how to use it what's the point of putting it in the market right exactly and i think the um a lot of early software could get away with being obtuse and uh, just you had to learn exactly the way to do it but as software has matured then then other people come in with better ways of doing it and the expectations go up and i think that's been nothing but positive because then it's it's more user centered it's more tailoring it towards the people that will use it rather than um creating it based on the tool set that you know what to do. It's it's two different ways of thinking about it. Now with this program that you're learning, were you applying those skills into video games or were you still, were, were there, what kind of stuff were you doing with these algorithms that you're building? So these, in school I ended up really liking the low level stuff, which is funny. The because um, there's a few different levels of programming. Um, there's the programming that makes up the website you see or the applications you use. And then there's the programming that makes up the operating system of the computer itself. 
um, and there's a level of programming below that that is sending instructions about things. So I really liked compilers, which was a way to convert the code into something that would work. And the concept is kind of like, um, have you ever used SoundHound or a program like that to understand, to identify a piece of music? Sound, like uh, the ones where you, I believe- Or Shazam. Uh, Shazam, all right, like the phones used to have them, or the some have it, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like an app Yeah. where you listen to a, a song on the radio, you like it, but you like to know what it's called or who's singing it. Yeah. So you put the app on and the it translates and it tells you information about the song exactly so okay. that um it's, it's keep in similar. mind i i'm i'm i am nowhere a tech guy like so oh yeah n no worries if i sound I dumb i apologize but i'm with you so far no i'm i'm all about finding the concepts that are similar yeah so that's a similar concept <laughs> in that um what what shazam is doing is it's listening for something that you're sending to it and then it has to match it based on what it knows and so like this note matches this this note matches that and it starts narrowing the set of things that it knows about based on what it's hearing about until it can say oh you were meaning to say this or you this is the piece of song that you were listening to so similar idea but it's funny because all that is so deep and so low-level tech and I, I did look into video games um, and what the different levels of programming would be. And I honestly moved away from it because of what I was hearing about the industry mm. um, in terms of the amount of hours that people had to put into it. Mm. And I took a couple of computer graphics classes, which were a lot of fun. I created things in 3D. I worked with a beta piece of software that wasn't working quite right, and one day I had built this little dog in 3D, and then I saved my file. And I came back the next day and I opened the file, and my dog had exploded <laughs> because something had gone wrong with the file. <laughs> um, but So it was fun. I, I enjoyed the graphics, but I had started... I would have enjoyed that in video games, exploding dogs, yeah. you know, just randomly happening. Yeah, so I, like, the, the actual work sounded super interesting but then I, I started asking around and learning about the jobs and would hear things about like oh yeah 100 hour weeks are typical yeah or oh yeah you'd work on this for a while and then they fire the entire team after the game is done right and right. which is also common with the um, visual effects uh, uh, industry exactly because I think they're very especially these days how cinematic a lot of video games are becoming but uh, a lot of these um uh, companies go bankrupt so fast. Yeah, I, I see a lot of similarity between um, visual effects and animation and even comic artists. Um, I, I know some people that have bounced around between the three because the industries all work in a similar way where you kind of get hired for a project and you've got to find your next gig after that. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Jesus. Well, sorry to hear that. You know, it's so. So yeah. you heard about this. You're like, all right, not exactly the lifestyle I want to be in. What was the decision? By the way, were you still working on art on the side? Were yeah. You, were you still drawing and painting and? Yeah. So I I was doing a minor in studio art, which meant that I could take classes specifically about drawing and painting. And in addition to that, I started working for the school newspaper as an editorial cartoonist. So. All right. Which was so fun because it was a daily paper, and so and they didn't restrict me on what to draw. So I would go every 
afternoon and check the AP wire about stories that were happening to get ideas. And then once I figured out what I wanted to draw, I would walk down the hall to the radio station and crash on their awful couch. Every radio station has a broken down couch. That's very true. <laughs> so, Especially a college one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I would sit there and I would um, draw my cartoon for the day and then go turn it in. And I ended up working for the radio station my last year, and I actually met my husband, um, wow. who was the general manager of the radio station. Now, so. did did you have to kind of, you know, stay in... Were you like a, a satirist, satirist uh, a comic book drawer? Because you were drawing for the newspaper. Were you looking for comedic elements to draw about? A little bit, yeah. So I ended up... I would get these... The space I could work with was a single panel. And so it was... It usually was more of a political cartoon, mm -hmm. and so sometimes I would do hyper-local cartoons about something that was happening in San Luis Obispo or with Cal Poly. There's one cartoon I did about the apartment complex that I lived in, which I felt very uncertain about putting out there because I thought, I'm, I'm going to lose my place. <laughs> Why? Because it was, it was critical. It was right. critical well, of the but, apartments. But, well, you were specific about which apartment you were yes. drawing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that, <laughs> that was the news. Um, but sometimes, uh, but that went okay. But thankfully. I don't think it's, it's difficult or, or slander because, or libel because it's, you're not single out one person. You're single out a general yeah. company or a general you know, thing. Exactly. So it's. I think you would have been in the okay. <laughs> and I tried not to be cruel. I, th I think there's a whole range of political cartoons and I usually was mildly critical but not too far and sometimes it would bounce up. I would do um, like national government level things. I was in college in the era of Bill Clinton which mm -hmm. was a lot of fun to draw. Um, I, I realized I don't have the heart to do it anymore because I would not be willing to draw Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> so well, what's interesting though it seems like you during that moment of your life that doing those things that I think you get a, a certain perspective of how powerful an image can be and, and the message conveying through an image yeah uh, are those things you picked up on you're like definitely because essentially since especially since it's being distribu distributed you want to make sure you're doing a good job drawing it and the message is coherent mm-hmm and, uh, and and possibly, you know, a, a little scandalous, right? Yeah, and sometimes the sometimes it wouldn't be a cartoon. Sometimes it would be an illustration to accompany an article. And there was a couple of pretty serious things that happened in San Luis Obispo while I was there. Um, there were a few different murders, and so I ended up illustrating things related to that. Um, one was, and they were all students, um, one turned out to be, well, was theorized possibly being involved with um, like a, a boyfriend that also went to the school. The other ended up being a serial killer in the area. So it was, it was a little wild. <laughs> so how do you approach that kind of responsibility at the time? Because there's a point where it's much more than just fun. There's a point right. where it's like... It's almost a responsibility. Right. Those those were definitely not... Um, those were simply illustrations to go with the piece. And um, I, I think that there's a responsibility not to inject other, um, other opinion beyond what the article is at that point. 
and especially because there's people involved at every part of this so it, it I, I was extremely cautious um, to just kind of present it as part of it without sensationalizing it hmm. all right so you're, you're going through you know college you're, you're doing a bunch of scales getting involved with so many things you graduate right mm -hmm. so what was the plan then um, I was fortunate to find a job right out of college. I ended up, I had had an internship um, with Adobe as well as Microsoft, and I kept in touch with them. And I was like, yes, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to work there. And when I originally talked to them, I came out and interviewed and then didn't get a job. And this was while I was finishing up my last year at Cal Poly. And I'm like, well, shoot. What am I gonna do? And so scary, isn't it? Yeah, totally scary. Yeah. So I I did um, the wait and see approach, which was <laughs> I I kept looking around, but I'm like I still have a few months. I yeah. don't know. And then I, it, I remember my my last year at college, I was like, all right, I might might as well turn to religion or something, you know, because <laughs> at this point, I, I'm, I'm depending on faith. Yeah. Well, I so I did something that I don't know how I pulled this out of myself, but I decided. Like, why don't I just check back? And I checked back with them and they said, oh yeah, we really liked you. Something changed with the the rec, the open position at the time, so we couldn't hire you, but we have something now. And so I was able to secure a job at that point where I, I, I just, I didn't expect anything to come from asking them. I thought maybe they could point me to something else. I didn't know what hmm. and so that's that's part of when I learned that um, there's a lot going on in job hiring that has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with the timing of the company and the team and they may love you but if if the timing of what's happening with their funding changes um, it, it changes yeah, there's a matter of luck I guess that yeah you, you gotta deal with I feel very lucky um, especially because I, so I was able to start working with them and got started as a user experience designer. Um, and so I learned everything on the job. Um, this was also an interesting time though, because that was 2000. Mm -hmm. So um, less than a year. And so any, I knew a lot of people in my program were getting job offers like out of school and it was, everything was going great. Less than a year later, everybody I knew was out of a job but me. My husband, my sister, my dad, all of my friends. And because that was the dot-com bust. Mm. And that, I, I felt like an ax had just swung over my head and I don't know how I ducked it, but um, that made me really realize that I needed to be careful not to assume that it, that companies or even types of jobs are going to stay the way they're going to stay. And I've seen the same thing happen again with, and it definitely happened in 2007, 2008 with yeah. the prime subprime mortgages and the housing market and, and like the whole financial system. Again, like I, it's, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I felt comfortable moving into doing like a contracting or a consulting kind of thing rather than working at a company full-time because it's it was an illusion of stability right right interesting because when you're a contractor you more or less have some control of the workflow and 
Yeah, well, you know, and you know, it's clients to have, and and you know, it's finite, so you know, you should keep looking. Right. And I think that when keeps you, you on your toes. Totally, yeah. Because yeah. I think when you're at a company, it so much is there's so much structure around it that you kind of feel like that's the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I ended up being at Adobe for almost ten years. What kind and of work were you doing for them? I was doing um, design work. I did user experience design um, for a few versions of Photoshop and a few versions of Illustrator and a bit at the creative suite level. But what that meant is that I I led the design. Um, so I would be the one working with the engineers to decide what things were called, where they went, how you use them. I would talk to people that would use them. And yeah. it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it's always, I feel so ashamed to talk to you because even to now, as much as I use Photoshop, I'm kind of winging it. Like, I, I, I just go from one thing to another. No way. Everyone yeah. is winging it. Yeah. No, well, I, I don't know. Because I met people who do, who do Photoshop in college and they know exactly where to go. Because, you know, that's where they study. Yeah. Me, I'm a film guy, right? So mm-hmm. I'm just winging it, trying to figure it out. And I have you here. I'm like, oh, God, I, I should. I don't think I'm qualified to talk to you about this right now. No, no, no. So, okay, the, the way you feel about Photoshop is the way I feel about After Effects or uh-huh. Premiere. Okay. So, just, you know, <laughs> and the feeling is mutual. Um, but actually, that's one of the things I learned about um, for Photoshop. Everyone feels this way. Yeah. Even professionals feel this way. And I think it's because it there's usually three or four different ways of doing a thing. And so... Um, and there's different reasons to do different things, but the only people that know everything are the people that teach it mm. or the people that design it. So, um, yeah, it's, and it's interesting because the there was a really strong effort towards not breaking old workflows. So at no matter what point you came in with Photoshop, you, sh- you should be able to continue to learn, use any technique you knew. Mm. And that's powerful. How does it feel to be part of like su- such a, a thing that changed, you know, several industries and and made, you know, a, so much creativity accessible to so many people you know, at a consumer level? Like, do you feel there's like, some pride with that? Oh, definitely. And it was I had a, a huge imposter syndrome for a while because I I came into that pretty young. I um. I started working on Illustrator. I was the lead designer of Illustrator when I was 24. Mm-hmm. And it Illustrator started in, what is it, 1987. That was the first version of Illustrator. So I, um, I kept very humble in talking with people that used it and built it. I, I worked with the engineers that made it and um, but yeah, I, I was. It was this enormous high in being able to be a part of that system, and I I got to meet some people that I just had this geek geek out about meeting. Like um, there's there's a guy that worked on really early computer graphic work in 3D. Mm-hmm. Um, his name's Martin Newell. He and he used a certain model to demonstrate everything, and it was a teapot. So he had this teapot and he decided to model it in 3D. So often when you see um, kind of core references to 3D, you'll see this teapot. So you can see like, look at the shininess and look at the details. So I met Martin and I saw the teapot and it was, it was so geeky. I, I don't know if you've ever met anyone like at a comic convention or anything like that, where you're like, 
okay, be be real. Like, don't be weird. But I, I had that kind of thing. Sure, with him. sure. I, I fangirled, you know, you, you know, to a couple of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, one time, I fangirled to a blues musician. Oh, cool. Outside uh, in and out parking lot. Nice. Did not go very well. Oh no. Uh, I, I was super weird. Oh. You know, he he, had, he he was like a blues musician. He had a bunch of burgers. I guess he was taking back to the band, and I was like, "Hey man, I love your music." And the guy's like, "Dude, can I just go?" Oh. <laughs> you know, I was like, "I'm sorry." And I literally ran. Like people saw this, you know, this 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 you know, uh, obese Mexican Latino guy just running across in and out. You're like, "Hey, I love your music." <laughs> That was embarrassing. Anyway, uh, I bet I, I bet he liked it. Though. Like it's it's part of the like I wasn't ready for this interaction. Right. But I I think you got you to gotta show your love too. Mm-hmm. Now uh, I I want, I want to switch gears to art. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems that your your first solo show was uh, in twenty was two years ago about a year about. Yeah, it was at the end of twenty sixteen. Which was prior art, right? Yes. At, at Collide? Yeah, so I um, I was able to build up a body of work and once I started, once I switched to contracting, then I had a little more time to do art. And so I switched to contracting in 2014 and I started building up this idea of all this knowledge that I had from Adobe about the ways that people did image manipulation or kind of these virtual reality type things so many of Adobe's tools are based on tools that existed before. Like um, in Photoshop, dodge and burn. It's, um, there's like one icon is this circle with a stick and the other icon is a hand making a little hole because when you would develop in the dark room, you'd either block out the light and let the light go through this hole in your hand Mm -hmm. um, or you would block out the light with this little stick to do more or less exposure to make it lighter or darker. So these stories just kept coming up again and again. And I I landed on this idea of what if I do a series of paintings to show people using these tools, the original tools, the non-digital tools, um, because sometimes just seeing the tool on its own, you don't really understand the context of how it's used. like. What does a person do with that? What's the rest of their environment? So I I did a series of paintings about that, and then a set of illustrations about other notable stories about those kind of techniques. So all of the paintings are friends of mine that either do that kind of thing digitally or have an interest in that kind of art. And you have an interesting way of presenting them. Is that you, you had like three elements to each piece, right? That's right. I ended up with seven technologies and then a, a painting and two illustrations for each one. Why did you choose to go that route? That's an interesting decision. I think part of it was based on the stories that I started learning and part of it was a very practical aspect of how much wall space I had to work with. Okay. So I was I was I wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to make this a professional show and make it good so I um, so I used Photoshop to mock up the wall mock up the amount of space and I wanted I wanted to really emphasize the seven technologies so I used the same painting size and the same illustration sizes for each of these groupings of three mm. whatever you like this like some of the, like a lot of the images had a, a, a photographic sense to them like the way they're angled I, I don't know, but I wasn't sure if you took a photograph and like drew 
of it or did you drew directly on, on canvas and for the for the paintings I've done I almost always use a photo reference especially with people because that's because I'm not that good <laughs> to be able to just look at a person and, and paint them and make it look right and especially I learned that the um, I always start every painting with a, a pencil drawing on the canvas right and the I could do that with every part except the face it's because these are people I know also so what I would need to do is I'd need to turn the canvas upside down and turn my reference photo upside down and draw it that way because it's it's a trick for fooling your brain so you don't draw what you think you're seeing mm -hmm. it you make it a little more abstract and you just have to draw what you're actually seeing and then you turn it back around and it magically looks correct magic looks correct it does it's magic i, I know that feeling yeah <laughs> you export the thing and i was like i don't know you post it on social media like, oh it looks pretty good actually yeah 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 uh how, how did it feel like is this your first show in some ways artists describe their pieces like their children mm -hmm. you got your kids up in display how was that feeling for you were you what was going through your mind of like oh so many people looking at your stuff it felt great because I felt like I I really had the idea together and I was able to execute on it. I was proud of the art itself. Um, what though I think I learned a lot about marketing on that one because I didn't know anything about the process for this other than what I was told by Collide, like do these things at this time. But I, I realized I probably should have been more proactive about marketing it early like reaching out to people and saying this thing's happening come out at this time um I, I got a really good turnout for the opening but i it was harder than i thought it would be to get people out within that month time frame of when i had the show up and you know and people are like yay you know we like your art but taking that next step of making the commitment to come out to a place they haven't been before and to come see art, like just going to go see art is is not a, a thing that a lot of people do. Like it's, um, I think I'm really glad when people go to galleries and they start seeing that going to go see art is just, it's a thing you can do to help shift your perspective to see what's out there. And it's, that was really interesting for me to realize that like, oh, not everyone just, decides to go do these things. Mm -hmm. Now, w growing up, did you go to a lot of art galleries yourself, or was this something that you developed later as you got more involved with the art world? Yeah, I, I went to a lot of art galleries and had a lot of art in the house. Um, a lot of art in our house was um, kind of similar to political cartoons. Like, um, oh, that's where I came from, huh? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, w now that I look back, I'm like, oh, of course. Um, Thomas Nast was a political cartoonist in the 1800s. He would be doing cartoons about Teddy Roosevelt right. and like the yellow fever. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like Thomas Nast prints and William Hogarth prints, that's what I was surrounded by growing up. Who was so. who, who the uh, the artist uh, connoisseur was it your father or your mother um they i'd say primarily my mother um but they both really liked art so i think the that that's where they had the kind of cross-section of the styles that they liked but i definitely got like if i trace the artistic skills back it's it's straight from my mom did she draw herself did she paint 
Not really, and I wish she would, because uh. she's got the skill. But I think, um, but she would show me things that she did in high school, like she did the cover for their yearbook, and oh. um, and she made things like for my room growing up, and so she's she's got the skill, but she didn't she didn't ever really come back into it. Hmm. Now you did a life painting at CineQuest. Yeah. How was that experience like? Did you, Have you done live painting before? No. Um, and so this was the first time I'd done live painting and the largest piece that I had done. So, and which big. I think I was, it was a very ballsy move, but you decided to, uh, to uh, paint hands. Yeah. Which is one of the most difficult things for, you know, artists to really nail down our hands. It's funny. I think I, I gravitated towards hands because I, Maybe this is just a little bit of introversion, but <laughs> something about faces. I I like painting faces, but I like the challenge of trying to communicate the feeling just by poses. Mm -hmm. So the and I I get really motivated when I come up with a nice core idea that will generate art from it. And so the core idea that I got for Cinequest was I wanted to do a collage of hands that each one was from a movie at Cinequest. So I looked through the movies at CineQuest and they have trailers online. So I watched a bunch of trailers and I guess this is back to the days of me with a VCR and the jog dial. I would, I would pause it, I would take a screenshot and then I would do a mock-up in Photoshop and work from that as my photo reference. Uh -huh. But it was so fun because I, that meant that I had a progression of when I could paint it. I would do a new hand every day and when I, I made an effort to go out to these parties and get-togethers to say, hey, live painting is going on, here's what I'm doing, here's, this is related to this movie, and I got to meet some of the filmmakers that way. Because, what year was this, by the way? Uh, this was last, or 20, oh crud, this was last year, 2017, in February, yeah. No, I was not involved in. Yeah. Well, it was kind uh, of a weird year for the live painting because they lost the camera twelve, or sorry, the the twelve downtown, so they didn't oh. have a spot for it. Okay. So it was me and uh, Force One Twenty Nine, Fernando Amaro Jr., hmm. and um, Brandon Anderton. We were the three artists, and so we ended up doing the art primarily at our studios because they couldn't find a place. Oh, interesting. They, right. Yeah, no one was. No one wanted to have paint around in their lobbies. Because I was going to ask you, how do you feel to be painting in front of a public? You know, who are constantly asking you questions and and looking at what you're doing. But I guess you didn't. You didn't have that experience. I didn't have that, but I tried to simulate it as best I could by getting. I had an old iPad, so mm. I would take a photo, and I would just walk around these parties with this iPad, and I just go talk to people which felt so weird uh, but I check out my drawing yeah yeah which I would never do just for myself like I would I would never be like yeah I want to go promote myself I'm like no that's the worst but I but, I loved the concept and I wanted people to know the live painting is still happening yeah and so I, I needed that to hang on to be like just do it just go do it well, I feel I feel like in these festivals like Santa Cruz, I think of all places to do, I think that's a good place to do it. You know, it's part of the whole thing. Yeah, and I hope um, I hope it's going to be able to happen on site this year because I think the Camera Three is opening back up for some CineQuest. Events. Camera Three, yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, I I just think it's a wonderful thing. So I I hope they're able to find a way to make it work this year as well. Hmm. Tell me about your upcoming show. Uh, your upcoming show it's called Natural Conclusions. 
Yes. And um, so, so tell me more about that. When's it going to be, and, and what, what's your what's your plan so far? So this show is opening um, very soon now. It's opening March 2nd, and so it will run through the month of March at Collide Gallery downtown. And it's called Natural Conclusions because it's primarily a show of landscapes. And the idea behind this was that I, I got this idea in my head of what if I take an incomplete painting and complete part of it? And so what I did was I went around to thrift shops in the South Bay primarily. Um, I, over the last year, I've been slowly gathering up original paintings that end up at thrift stores that look like they didn't really get finished. <laughs> like, um, kind of, I, I think a number of them are from paint night kind of events where you mm. have a limited amount of time. I didn't even know you could throw them at thrift stores and... Yeah, you can. Yeah, so I, have I no think... no idea. So here's, I, yeah, this is the life cycle of a paint night painting. So you keep it for a little bit and you're like, yeah, I did that thing. And then at some point you're like, I think I'm tired of that thing. So what do you do? You donate it to a thrift store. I wow, I, I that blows my mind. Yeah, so every thrift store, it's funny because they'll usually have only maybe one or two of these. Like they, I think they make an effort in their distributors not to just throw a bunch in one place, because you'll go in. There's always a back area with frames and that kind of thing. And then if you dig, you can maybe find one or two. And so I, I slowly started finding these and. What I've done is I take a diagonal strip across them and I finish painting it. So what that involves is... You finish painting the, the, the piece? Yes. Okay, wow. Just in that strip. Okay. So what I... It, mean, it meant that I have to... Sorry, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Oh, it's great. Uh, I'll, I'll show you a photo after this. Um, yeah. The, it's been so fun, though, because I've had to go online to figure out to find reference material and mm -hmm. um, because I'm like I this is a tree with snow on it what what should that look like or this is a sunset how should that look and so I go and I gather up all this reference material and then I tape off this diagonal part and just treat it like one of my paintings and just keep going and keep going until it's got the level of detail and the finesse that I want and then I take off the tape which is so fun because then you see the the original painting right next to the completed painting it's all one so if you're back from it it's all one painting but you as you get closer you're like oh what is going on <laughs> have you considered tracking down the original artists i think it would be impossible okay they, they don't have their signature or something or a name or a lot of them have signatures but not full names not full names yeah and i think a lot of them are probably done by people that have not done much art so like it's a class or it's a paint night painting um so it's they're these interestingly um they have a history but they're they're separate from it mm -hmm. and they'll probably never have a connection to it unless someone comes to the show and recognizes one of their pieces but i figured by the time it gets to a thrift store it has lived its first life like it, it had its original meaning and its purpose and that is now done is that sad do you think for a painting to end up at a thrift store like i don't know i don't know it makes either. me a little sad but then again i'm like maybe not i mean i think there's something hopeful. at least it's not a landfill right yeah and the there's something hopeful in it to me because the i had a painting years ago that i did in college sorry this is so beautiful because if you think <laughs> about it a thrift store is where you you send things for second chances right yeah, yeah. so here you find a painting 
hopefully, and you're providing it a second chance. Ah, I'm getting emotional. Wow. Well, and I, I've, I've had the experience of doing a painting and, and then feeling like it's not quite done. Um, I had one in college and I didn't like how it was. And I came back to it years later and I finally figured out what that thing was and I filled it in and I'm like, it's done. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like one, one thing that inspired me about this is as I was going, I kept thinking of things like, oh, if someone wanted to continue this, I could help them. Like I, I know what they could do. I know how they could pick colors that they'd be happier with. I know they could use different brush sizes. Like I could help them see parts of how the landscape is like, um, so I'm, I'm thinking about that a little bit to see if I might be able to find people that I would love to find people that have done paint nights and they're like, I've caught this thing. I like what I've done. I know it can be better and I don't know how. Mm -hmm. <laughs> have you ever, you know, uh, seen a painting at a thrift store and been like, wow, this person's really good. Like, Oh, totally. Yeah. There's, there's, I've, there's a threshold where, um, I've, I've refused to get certain paintings because I'm like, no, 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 that's good. Like, I, I would feel bad painting over this. Mm. And it's, um, and that's, that's tough. I've, I've bought some sometimes and then decided later on, no, 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 this is, this should stay the way it is. And, but I'm, I'm trying to be really mindful of like the, the person that painted it. And I don't, I don't want them to feel bad for what they've done. Mm -hmm. I, it, it's interesting. It's made me think a lot about reuse and um, kind of who's involved in right and of your own work as well. Like you have no yeah. idea where your work might end up in. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the fascinating things with finally starting to make enough work to sell. Um, sometimes I've sold work and I have no idea who bought it. And that's that's such a different thing than making work for a family or friends, where mm -hmm. you're like, I know where that lives, and now like as a part of art you just you make things and they go in the world mm -hmm. and you may never see them again <laughs> how do you process that idea that idea of of art and then the business of art which sometimes are this are totally different things like do, do, do you feel there's a certain way you you value the art that, that you put a price on it I think I I've been focusing much more on the the creation of the art and what I get from it and the the business of it as a secondary thing, and I'm I'm giving myself the time to slowly learn about the business, and I can I can do that because I can do design contracts, so it's important to live, and that helps me live. Yeah. But um the like in in the process of slowly learning about the business, my goal for this coming show is I'm probably this weekend going to write a press release. That's a strange thing, but I realize the value in it because then maybe I can send it to like the Metro or something else and maybe they'll write about it and then more people can learn about it. Oh, man. That's awesome stuff. Wow. And uh, and so this is happening on March at Collide as well? Yeah, that's right. How would you get in touch with the Collide Gallery? Yeah. Does Sherry also run that place? Yeah, she does. And so I learned about Collide and in 2014 when I originally started thinking about how do people do this thing like where do I where do I put art mm -hmm. and um, I first needed to make more art which should have been obvious but was kind of a surprise to me <laughs> so I, I made more art and then once I had enough I started looking around at different galleries to find where it fit where its home was and um, Collide has a 
I, I really like Collide's structure because they have, I want to say, 60 to 70 different artists there who each have a wall, four feet wide, eight feet tall, where you can sell your stuff. And so they, you can, you know, refresh um, every three months to decide if you want to stay there or not. But if you stay there, then you have the option to show. So I, I loved it for the range. I, I there were, um, kind of back back to the diversity thing. Like I, I feel so much more comfortable when there's people doing a whole range of things. Some that are just astounding to me. Some that I'm like, oh, okay, you know, that's it's not my thing, but it's your thing, and that's okay. <laughs> do you, do you feel that's certain principles that you apply in your own art? Kind of this whole the diversity and body of work. Or do you feel common themes or motifs that you keep coming back to? I, I definitely keep coming back to um, portraiture, I think. Um, the landscape thing was interesting, but I got antsy. <laughs> so I like I like portraits of people and animals. Um, but I, I have been letting myself explore the projects as I want to, which I have the luxury of doing since I can support myself with design. Um, rather than which I think might not actually be great for me as a business um, for art, because I think for art as a business, if you have a style, then it's much easier to market that because then you, you get recognized for it's your like a style. brand. Yeah, right. exactly. And I, I consider myself still very much an experimental phase. So I don't want to lock down to a brand too early. Hmm. So let's say you're looking at a blank canvas. Mm-hmm. Do you have a certain routine that you do before you start on a on a new painting? Yeah, and it's a it's a routine I learned from an, another artist, and it served me really well. Um, my friend Wayne Zhang, he was a Bay Area artist who moved up to Oregon last year. Um, he learned a technique that was similar to what he saw in paintings by the Dutch masters in the 1700s or 1800s. So he he had gone to museums and seen partially complete paintings. So he could see the layers that went into it and how they approached it. Is this related to the thrift store thing? Uh, you know, I kind of I, I apply some of the same okay. techniques like again and again. But the, I I love this technique because the um, here it is in a nutshell. Um, you you draw your sketch of what you're gonna do um, on the canvas. And then you you figure it out based on the tones first. So it's almost it's almost like it's black and white. But in this case, um, we would do tones kind of in warm colors, like yellow ochre, then burnt sienna, then burnt umber. And what you end up with is this kind of grayscale version where you can see very clearly what it is. And then you bring in the colors and you do these layers of colors on top, and you put them in gradually, and by layering them up, it gives it so much more depth. So that's the technique that I use on all my paintings. So you put in a blueprint framework, mm -hmm. then you apply the paint mm -hmm. in other layers. Yeah, and this is acrylic paint, and a lot of people have thought it's oil because of its depth. And it's just that the... Um, I, I was listening to another show of yours, and someone mentioned this, that acrylic paint as a technology is relatively new. It came out in the 40s or 50s, I think. Uh -huh. and, um, Who said that? Oh, I was just listening. It was relatively recently. It might have been... Um, Lucy? Might have been Lucy. Lucy. Yeah. yeah, I think it was yeah. Lucy, because she was saying this. You're the first guest to reference the show 
again. I don't know. Sweet. Let's do more of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So the um, acrylic paint is a new, it's a newer technology. It's a newer chemical that they're working out. But the, um, it's gotten to the point where the quality is on par. It's similar to the quality of oil, which is the way that people have painting been painting for centuries. So, but it's nice because it's less noxious. And that's part of why my friend Wayne, um, he switched to acrylic. And so his thing was all about how to replicate oil techniques using acrylic paint. Mm-hmm. And talking about color, I noticed that um, you have an interesting palette with your work. <laughs> there seems to be very um, bright, cheery, colors yeah for the most part <laughs> I'm kind of surprised I, I didn't go into it thinking that but, but when I look at it together I'm like oh wow well I have a theory I have a theory so far it's <laughs> just a theory that I feel colors and the way we we an individual utilizes colors can be a reflection of their mood or personality do you feel there's a connection there I think there could be I'm I'm generally a pretty optimistic person um, and I think a lot of a lot of why design appealed to me is it's there's an optimism coupled with an acceptance that you don't entirely know. Um, one of the favorite phrases is strong opinions loosely held. So <laughs> <laughs> you, it means that you just come in with a point of view, but you know that you will learn more and right. keep an open mind. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, I've done some kind of darker palette things, um, but it's. Yeah, I guess I do gravitate towards just a little more colorful. I, I want it to be true, and I think the the palettes have ended up colorful because, as a side effect of kind of the topics I've chosen. That's an interesting notion you brought up: is this idea of of truth, <laughs> and how you correlate truth with color. Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to some, like I think myself, uh, truth is black and white. You know. <laughs> So I don't know. It's interesting that perspective that you have. Do, where do you think that comes from? Um, I think part of it is that's what's motivated me to do art, because I I remember distinct times when I've wanted to do something artistic and I've just frozen because I didn't know what to do, and like I I remember this back in high school. You know, you get yearbooks and then you want people to sign your yearbook, and so everyone wanted me to draw something in it. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what to draw. And I, there's a series of people's notebooks or yearbooks that have a dead bee in them because that was the only thing I could think of. We're sitting out in the quad and I'm like, there's a dead bee. I'm going to draw the bee. <laughs> that, that's a brand. There you go. A dead bee. <laughs> yeah. So I think I, um, I've recognized when things inspire me to do art and I'm just grabbing it whenever I find it because I know what that feeling was like when I want to do art and I just am paralyzed because I don't know what. Hmm. Well, Julie, we've reached the hour mark. We're, we're, we're closing up shop now. Thank you for coming. Um, quick, uh, let's remind the listeners where they can catch your next show, where can they find your work online and all that jazz. Sure thing. Um, so you can find me online um, by my name. It's Julie Meridian. So I have juliemeridian.com, which is a great place to go to see my art. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter um, and Facebook, creatively named Julie Meridian. <laughs> so it should be easy to find. Um, and my upcoming show is Natural Conclusions at Collide Gallery 
um, down uh, downtown on Fourth Street near the library. Um, so that's going to be opening on first Friday, uh, March second. There'll be a nice big party there. You can come meet me, and it will be running through the month of March. And uh, you gave me this great gift. I, I, I'm loving it. It's it's a, it's a book of your of the of the show that you've done previously. Prior art. Is this available for, to purchase online? Yeah, it is. So if you're interested in the prior art show that we talked about, you can learn more on my website. And I got really ambitious with the show and I made a book because there were so many good stories about the um, these kind of um, analog technologies and this vintage virtual reality. So yeah, check it out. And um, I have an awesome book available if you'd like it. All right, Julie, thank you for coming. Cool, thank you. All right, you heard it here. Check out her work at juliemeridian.com. And make sure to catch her shows upcoming in March at the Collide Gallery. All right, that's it this week. Have a great Sunday. Have a great uh, rest of your day. Great rest of your week. Have a good night. Sweet dreams. Just throwing a lot of positivity out to you guys. And uh, I hope it works. And next week, our guest is a comedian. It's been a while since I talked to this gentleman one-on-one. It's great to have him here. So look forward to that. The the great... uh, Actually, I shouldn't say his name yet. You'll find out next week, so stay tuned. Have a good one once again. Check out the JMSPodcast.com website. And please support this podcast on Patreon. Alright, that's it. I'm out of here. Come on, I have to go enjoy my Sunday as well. So let's do it. Let's go.